You are welcome this morning to indeed this important discussion towards zero pollution, measuring citizens' health and well-being. We will be discussing that and the various implications. You can join us online by using the hashtag Healthy Europe or hashtag WellBeingForAll because we do want you to join in the conversation today. We have a couple of keynote addresses for you from the European Parliament and from the European Commission and then we will go into a discussion where we have some excellent panellists waiting to answer your questions. So I am switching on the Q&A function. Do please get those thoughts into us and we will then also be having a chat about what we can do and how we can move forward. But with that, let me first say that we're delighted to be partnering with the All Policies for a Healthy Europe. And we're going to start now with Commissioner Virginius Sienkiewicz, who is got as joining us live this morning. Thank you very much, Commissioner. Um, I'm going to hand over to you to tell us why you think this is so important and what we're to, and, and you know what set out the parameters of what we need to discuss today. A very good morning uh, to, to everybody and, and of course I hope you can hear me well and of course thank you for this uh, very timely uh, invitation. It's almost exactly a, a month uh, since uh, the Commission adopted the Zero Pollution Action Plan for air, water and soil. And events like this one clearly demons, demonstrate the level of interest and, and this is one of the last overarching building blocks adopted under the European Green Deal. Together with the chemical strategy for sustainability adopted last year, it shows how we plan to translate the zero pollution ambition for a toxic-free environment into action on the ground. And the COVID crisis seems to be abating and it's taught us many things. It was a reminder of how our own health is connected to the health of the planet. And we have developed the COVID vaccines, but there is no one miracle cure for pollution. One in eight deaths in the EU is linked to environmental pollution and 90% of these deaths are due to chronic diseases, most frequently cancer. And the situation is socially inequitable with vulnerable groups suffering the most. That means children, people with medical conditions, older persons and, and, and persons with disabilities and, and people living in, in poorer socioeconomic conditions. The health of the planet is also under threat and pollution is one of the five main drivers of, of biodiversity loss and ecosystems degradation, which is threatening the survival of more than one million species, but also our own. And these negative impacts are expected to worsen unless we manage to change. And that, of course, is why we are here. I'm sure we all recognize the moral obligation to do better and to radically increase the level of environmental ambition. Our vision for the zero pollution ambition is that by 2050 we'll live in a toxic-free environment. It is the aspiration we strive for, recognizing that to get there we have many challenges to tackle along the way. But what's clear is that to reach levels that are no longer harmful for health and natural ecosystems and respect the boundaries of our planet, we must start now. And I'm absolutely convinced that we can get there, provided we have certain conditions in place. One of them is putting all efforts to better implementing our existing environmental legislation, but also identifying gaps and closing them as necessary. For example, as announced, we are reviewing the standards for the quality of water, including in EU rivers and seas, 
And for those of ear, as well as tackling harmful substance in consumer products, all this with the objective to better protect our citizens' health in mind. But another essential element, the topic of this roundtable, is setting up an adequate mechanism to track our progress and to take environmental monitoring and outlook to the next level. We can't manage what we can't measure, and especially identifying emerging concerns, but also possible integrated solutions. We are already doing quite a lot of measuring. Uh, we collect a lot of piecemeal data on pollution, but we rarely see the big picture. Often we also miss to consider the overall costs to society through its impacts on, on health, for example, but also the possible win-wins uh, of, of solutions that we can put forward. Pollution data and also health data, in fact, are often dealt with by many different actors at the national, European and international level in a fragmented way. We need that synthetic overview and also better integrated information. And that's why the Zero Pollution Action Plan plots out the development of an integrated uh, monitoring and output framework as an integral part of the Eighth Environment Action Program. The details are set out uh, the staff working document that accompanies the action plan. It also sets out our intentions on how we want to develop this monitoring with all partners inside and outside the institutions. We have started planning the work and identifying areas where we need to step up our efforts so that the monitoring and the outlook generate information that's timely and relevant for policy. We can already see, for example, that soil pollution monitoring needs to be developed further but we also need to make better use of this information in all relevant policy areas. For example, as announced in the action plan, we want to ensure that the cancer inequalities registry and the atlas of demography are regularly fed with pollution monitoring and outlook data, or that the performance of, of regions and cities is better collected and communicated to spur pollution reduction across the different branches and levels of government. And very importantly, we need to properly implement the polluter pays principle as the costs of pollution are today still most often borne by the whole of society and especially the most vulnerable and i'm confident that this more uh, monitoring and output framework will deliver the goods it will take us closer to one of uh of key ambitions in the zero pollution uh, action plan giving us a compass to mainstream pollution prevention in all relevant eu policies stepping up implementation and identifying possible gaps. I said that pollution was a matter of social equity. We really need to keep uh, that in mind. This is the beginning of a battle for a healthier, fairer, and more equal future. And that's a battle we can't afford to lose. Thank you very much, Commissioner. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is a battle we can't afford to use, uh, to lose. And I'm very impressed that you mentioned the uh, the COVID as a sort of wake-up call. Uh, just a quick follow-up question. Do you think that has fundamentally changed our approaches the last year or the last 18 months? I think it, 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 it definitely gives a, a different perspective. Uh, we saw that, you know, first of all, of course, I don't want that um, the message that, that you know, uh, such thing as, as, as pandemic, uh, as, as COVID, such a horrible thing, what happened is, is the way to fight pollution. It's not. But it gave us a, a definitely different perspective uh, in, in, in certain cities to see uh, that 
without uh, uh, without traffic, uh, with the decrease of, of air pollution, uh, people can 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 breathe uh, easier, better, and 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 of course that has an impact on 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 our health, on our well-being, and and most importantly, I think with this pandemic, everyone. Uh, perceive nature a bit differently. Uh, everyone saw nature as a sort of safe heaven where you can return, where you can relieve, uh, and so on. And I think uh, this gives a good opportunity window for politicians, uh, for decision makers, not only at EU level, but uh, national governments, uh, regional governments, to act and, and, and take decisions which maybe they were afraid to take off uh, not to take let's say away a comfort uh, from 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 certain groups of people i think this is this is a good moment well thank you for that and i know today we're just talking about europe specifically but obviously you can't fight pollution on your own um, have you any big hopes for for what's happening at the g7 and so on i mean the, this need that it has to be a global effort Absolutely, uh, pollution respects no borders, and 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 we cannot uh, expect ourselves, you know, to successfully fight pollution, but but leaving, you know, countries which, first of all, are are neighboring countries uh, uh, across the EU border uh, to 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 stay in in the same uh, situation. We have to help them uh, as well, uh, and 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 I think you know there is there is multiple positive ways to to do so, and and with our in, in investments abroad, if we manage to, you know, export our plans of, for example, renovation wave, uh, people will see a positive change. Uh, the positive change they first of all see in their uh, heating bills, but secondly, uh, shortly, they will feel a, a relief in their lungs. Appreciate you taking the time. I think it speaks to how important this issue is that in your busy schedule you took time out for us this morning. So thank you very much, Commissioner. We're going to turn now to a message from the European Parliament, specifically from MEP Sarah Sherdas, who is on the Becca Committee and Vice Chair for the Environment and, and Vice Chair and also on the Environment Committee. So let's have a look at what she has to say. Hello everyone and thank you for all policies for a healthy Europe. Sorry, you just when the commissioner said the utmost pleasure to be here with you. My name is Sara Serdes. I'm a member of the European Parliament and a medical doctor in the field of public health. It is um, quite important to to understand what this pandemic un unveiled and the persistent threats that exist to the health of our pl planet calls for urgent matters too. And we must not forget that we were in an emergency even way before this uh, SARS-CoV-2 striked us. We have the climate emergency, environmental pollution, biodiversity loss and unsustainable use of the resources pose multiple risks to the human, animal and environmental health. Hence, uh, my pledge in the European uh, Parliament to have a one health approach in, and health in our policies approach in the policies that we do, not only in the Envy Committee, but all across um, the Parliament. There is an urgency to act. Pollution is indeed a cause for many diseases and pathologies, um, and it's quite correlated to, as a risk factor for most of non-communicable diseases. 
but it is also one of the main drivers for communicable diseases such as uh, those diseases that are um, are vector-borne so all impacts in the ecosystems will have an impact also on infectious diseases. For this I highly salute the, the zero pollution ambition that the European Commission has presented. This is a cross-cutting objective to contribute to the UN 2030 Agenda for the Sustainable Development Goals and will complement the 2050 Climate Neutrality Goal in synergy with the clean and circular economy and restored biodiversity goals. It is part of the European Green Deal and the main objective in this is to include pollution prevention in all relevant EU policies. So, in order to steer the EU towards the 2050 visions for a healthy planet for all, this action plan has uh, intermediate targets to speed up pollution reduction, such as reducing by 55% the health impacts of premature deaths by air pollution, by 30% the share of uh, people that are chronically disturbed by noise uh, pollution, by 25% the EU ecosystems where air pollution threatens biodiversity and by 50% nutrition losses by, with the use and risk of pesticides and more hazard ones and the sale of antimicrobials for agri and aquaculture. So it's of the importance to achieve these goals, to have these goals, to achieve these goals, but for this to be a reality we need to develop work in a very articulated and cooperative way between all the different sectors, all across the member states, but also with the regions and with the cities. And I would like to highlight some important instruments under this ambition that will be a reality. One of them is the Climate Health Observatory. Um, we are now being stricken struck by more frequent and intense extreme weather events, such as heat waves or, or cold waves, wildfires, floods and landslides. I come from a peripheral country, Portugal, and I am from an outermost region, um, Madeira. So we are more susceptible by these types of events and we need to make ourselves more resilient. And under the banner of keeping healthy in a changing climate, the European Commission, the European Environment Agency launched the European Climate and Health Observatory in March 2021. This new uh, observatory aims to co-create, connect, pool and provide knowledge, expertise and pools required to tackle the health challenges related to climate change. So this is good news for us all uh, involved in the fight against climate change and its effects in health. And this observatory also supports the EU Green Deal. Another initiative is the Living Labs for Green Digital Solutions and Smart Zero Pollution. This has been launched in 2021 by the Commission. And this is to engage with regional and local authorities and other stakeholders with the main goal to help develop local actions for green and digital transformation. So we're going to achieve our goals, not only in the climate transition, but also in the digital transition. 
a clear example of how to think global and act locally. Another initiative is the re reduction of health inequalities through zero pollution. And uh, with this objective in mind, from 2022 onwards, the Commission will ensure that there will be a new uh, announced cancer inequalities registry and an atlas of demography and that will be regularly fed with pollution monitoring data. So by 2024, we will have um, an idea, uh, an overview of what are the trends, the disparities, the inequalities across EU regions, because it's only when we understand the data that we can act on the information the data gives us. So just to conclude this uh, short introduction to this very important initiative, the Zero Pollution Action Plan comes in a time where the European Union has set itself the target of achieving climate neutrality by 2050. We must not forget that we all always need to have in mind the health and well-being of our population and Indeed, with this initiative we're going and with this action plan, we're going to have uh, lots of tools in order to help us to put in march our vision for a pollution-free world. So now it's really and truly the time to act and deliver for a healthier world. Thank you very much. And indeed, thank you. Uh, a very, very warm, <laughs> warm and grateful welcome to uh, members of the European Parliament for getting in touch and joining us today. I mentioned at the beginning, of course, that we are partnering with all policies for a healthy Europe coalition today. So let's have a brief look now at a video giving us some background information. 70% of Europeans want to see more action at EU level on health and well-being. Our mission is to position citizens' health and well-being at the centre of EU policymaking. We need to better tie health measures to other linked areas such as the environment, climate, digitalisation, food and nutrition, pharmaceuticals, and this will be precisely the focus of our synergies within the Commission. All Policies for a Healthy Europe is an intersectoral initiative that brings together a diverse group of NGOs, think tanks, associations, companies and individuals. We champion a broad and bold vision for health and well-being and see health and well-being as catalysts to a stronger economic model. We seek opportunities for collaboration beyond the healthcare sector. All Policies for a Healthy Europe is keen to support the European Commission's vision for a healthy, climate-neutral, socially inclusive Europe. Well, as you can see there from that video, it is an ambitious aim. And of course, there's a lot of great knowledge going into this. It's very much science-led with a lot of knowledge partners. And we're going to hear now from Sophie Rasmussen, who is the Vice President for Essential Health and Sustainability in Europe, Middle East and Africa at Johnson & Johnson Consumer Health. So let's hear from her, of course, all led by the science we hear Johnson Johnson a lot at the moment because of their great work on the vaccines. But of course, it's broader than that. It's about all health.
Hi, I'm Sophie Rasmussen, Vice President for Essential Health and Sustainability for Europe, Middle East and Africa at Johnson & Johnson Consumer Health. I am delighted to join this important event as an All Policy for Healthy Europe Corporate Knowledge Partner to discuss a topic which we have at heart, the essential link between human health and the environment. As the world's largest healthcare company at Johnson & Johnson, we know that human health is inextricably linked to the health of the planet. Healthy people need a healthy planet. And that is why we have accelerated our commitments and actions towards sustainability, announcing our next generation of global climate goals. We will source 100% of our electricity needs from renewable sources by 2025. We will achieve carbon neutrality for all our operations worldwide by 2030. And we will reduce our upstream value chain carbon footprint by 20% by 2030, engaging our suppliers to help us reach this goal. At Johnson & Johnson Consumer Health, serving 1.2 billion consumers with products rooted in science, we are uniquely positioned to help our consumers and employees live healthy through their whole life. In 2020, we launched our Healthy Life mission, our ambitious agenda to advance human health while also protecting our planet. And we are investing $800 million over the next 10 years to advance initiatives in three core areas. Number one, our product portfolio. Number two, our operations. And finally, number three, partnerships, which we will fund to have a broader societal impact by 2030. We are evolving the way we do business. From designing products with the health of the planet in mind uh, to tackling sustainability at all levels of our supply chain and improving product transparency beginning with ingredients so our consumers have the information they need when choosing health products for themselves and their loved ones. Across our product portfolio, we set tangible targets to make our packaging easier to recycle or reuse. By 2025, our brands will achieve 100% recyclable, reusable or compostable plastic packaging and 100% certified or post-consumer recycled paper and pulp-based packaging. By 2022, we will eliminate polystyrene and black plastic containers from our global portfolio and expand our reuse models across our portfolio of brands such as Johnson's, Avino and OGX. We are already making tremendous progress. A few examples. And in 2021, this year, Johnson's Baby will shift from pumps to caps on many uh, lotion and wash products, eliminated 30 million impossible to recycle pumps from landfills every year. Operationally, we're driving sustainable change at our facilities and through our people and our extended value chain to support our goals. The Johnson & Johnson Consumer Health Factory in Helsingborg in Sweden became GNJ's first ever facility to achieve CO2 neutrality for all energy sources across manufacturing, warehousing and R&D facilities in 2017. This year, 
The plant has been recognized by the World Economic Forum, earning lighthouse status for applying fourth industrial revolution practices that can serve as a model for all manufacturers and supply chains across the globe. While we know that no one company or government will have all the answers to the great public health and environmental challenges of the, our time, we are committed to collaborating with partners to learn, understand, share knowledge, expertise and innovations to build a healthier future. Which is why we value the power of partnerships and collaborations like this one to transparently contribute to the public debate and help drive systemic change at scale. As a coalition, All Policies for Healthy Europe strives to foster knowledge sharing, best practices and science-based policy recommendations towards putting people's health and well-being at the centre of all areas of EU policy making. We would also like this event to be an opportunity to identify the challenges and knowledge gaps that still lie ahead in order to guide our coalition's action and work for the future. Thank you for joining us for this exciting session. Well, thank you very much. I think we've heard now, we've heard from the Parliament, the Commission, and indeed the knowledge partners about why today's event is so important. So it is now time for me to introduce you to our panelists. Our speakers today are very knowledgeable and we're really going to hope to get the best out of them. So do remember to use the Q&A function to ask your questions. So with that, let me introduce Alexandra Kazmierzak, expert on climate change and human health at the European Environment Agency. We also have Shiga Zanek, who is the head of Country Review SDGs and Impact Measurement at OECD WISE Centre. Jasper Kluwer is the Director of Sustainability at Philips and Maria Fernanda Cabrera is a Professor at the Universidad Politecnica de Madrid and Coordinator of the Horizon 2020 Pulse Project. Thank you all very much for joining us today. We really do appreciate it. Let's just have a quick uh, tour de table. You have a minute or so just to set out your stall, tell us what's important and to highlight your key messages. Alexandra, I will uh, let you go first. Good morning, everyone. It's an absolute pleasure to be here today. And um, I would like to talk about the European Climate and Health Observatory and the MEP, Sarah Czerdash, already very kindly introduced the initiative. So I just would like to reiterate that it's a recent initiative of the European Commission, European Environment Agency, and a host of other partners aiming at improving our knowledge on climate change and health. It is a recognized gap. It is a huge problem for our society, probably the biggest health risk in the long term and the aim of the observatory is to pull the knowledge the expertise and the resources of the organizations involved in the either climate change work or health work or both in recognition that not a single organization can resolve this problem so only by working in partnership and pulling together um, our knowledge resources and expertise we can provide the knowledge that can support effective policy making and implementation of actions protecting people from the impacts of climate health. More to come later. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you indeed. Lots more to come. Jiga, uh, let us hear a little bit about your position. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Uh, so I'm coming from the WISE Center and uh, I'm actually heading the work on the impact measurement and SDGs. So my focus would really be on importance of measuring uh, you know, if you want to manage it well, you have to also measure it well. But sustainability has been at the heart of what the OECD is doing 
since uh, its inception in 1960. And sustainability not only with respect to non-inflationary type of macroeconomic um, idea of it, but also taking into account very closely environmental issues, taking into account people, what it really matters for them. So since then, we've been developing frameworks, data, indicators, and most recently, we provided a very consistent approach to bringing together both on one side inequalities and the environmental issues in the report that we call the environmental nexus. And this is really um, sort of an, our blueprint of uh, steering discussion and work towards a people-centered green transition. So now that we are hopefully going out of the COVID, we really need to think carefully, how do we build back better? So basically to combine the short-term impact that we've seen materializing uh, both on how people live their lives, but also on the environmental issues with a longer term trajectory reaching towards uh, the, the 2030 agenda, uh, different SDG goals as well. So perhaps I will stop here. This is enough for introduction, but very happy to iterate on several points later on as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you indeed. Uh, Jasper, give us the, the, the viewpoint from uh, Philips. Uh, good morning. My name is Jasper Klever. I'm Director of Sustainability at Philips. Philips is a leader in health technology. We provide innovative solutions that promote health and improve healthcare delivery. Let me share one example of our environmental commitments. Already last year, Philips achieved carbon neutrality for our own operations. But as part of our next commitments, we will further reduce CO2 emissions in our entire value chain. So that includes also the impact uh, of in the use phase of our products. This is in line with the uh, uh, science-based targets of having a 1.5 degree global warming scenario. So I'm super excited to be here uh, today. As a health technology company, we recognize the trend of rising uh, chronic diseases such as heart disease, cancer, and respiratory conditions. And we also observe global resource constraints. So um, we really need a focus on prevention and population wellness. Zero pollution is a strong enabler for improving health and wellness. So I'm again uh, happy to be with all of you at this uh, event. Thank you. Very good to hear from you and, and well done on achieving that, uh, that goal. Um, Maria, last but not least, um, tell us what you're working on. Thank you so much. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure uh, for me to be here today to give you also some insights of the work that we have carried out within the Pulse uh, European project. Um, I come from the university. I am an um, innovation director of a research group called uh, Life Supporting Technologies, whose mission is to contribute to the process of digital transformation of health using the power of technologies and data for patient care, disease prevention, and personalization of treatments to contribute to the improvement of the quality of life of the citizens. And together with a consortium of 12 partners, we developed PULSE that aim at uh, promoting both air pollution awareness and healthy habits to reduce health risks in seven pilot cities around the world initially Barcelona, Paris, Birmingham, New York, and Singapore, and uh, later in Papilla and Kilan. So I'm happy to share with you more information during this panel. Thank you.
Thank you very much. I'm sure I will come back to you because I was struck by, by what the Commissioner said at the very beginning about how sometimes piecemeal data misses the bigger picture. So I'm sure that's something we want to talk about in, in a bit more detail. But Alexandra, let me, let me start with you. You mentioned the importance of partnership and knowledge sharing when it comes to bridging the gaps. Again, mentioned by, by our, our, our keynote speaker regarding the impact of climate change on health. So can you give me some examples about how this works in practice? Yes, uh, of course, just to start from the fact that Observatory is still a baby. It was only born about three months ago. So we are still um, learning by doing, developing the partnership and just getting into the stride of things. But uh, some examples of them, of the successful partnerships we've developed are, for example, with the Lancet Countdown Group. It's a group of uh, worldwide uh, academics and researchers specializing in climate change and health. And we've worked with them by uh, supplying them with them uh, European data and adjusting slightly the indicators that have been developed for them global situation to the European conditions uh, in order to, 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 to reflect the situation in Europe as accurately as possible when it comes to the modeling uh, and projections of, um, of climate change uh, impacts. And this set of indicators is available on the observatory website. Another type of uh, partnership we have is with the Copernicus services, both on the climate change side of things, as well as the atmosphere monitoring services. And we've worked with them, climate change services at Copernicus to develop a user-friendly interface that would allow anyone uh, without programming skills to actually access the climate projections, for example, for extreme heat waves, uh, the suitability uh, of climate for tiger mosquitoes. So the information is available on the observatory website and it's available for uh, regions in Europe. So the local and regional authorities can actually access the data and see how the situation is likely to develop in the region uh, or local authority uh, in the future. Um, we are also working quite closely with uh, member states uh, in the EU and also a few other collaborating countries. Uh, and we recently ran a webinar with them in order to find out what are the actual information needs, what topics uh, would be of interest to them that we address through the observatory, how should we present the data uh, to them. So that's been uh, very useful for us to give us an, a steer for, uh, for, for the future developments. And here, uh, also comes my uh, plea to the audience because the observatory is only as good as the information and knowledge it holds and we have a resource catalog that is currently being populated so um, if you uh, know of any interesting reports tools case studies uh, please feel free to to reach out to us and provide them and uh, and we'll see whether we can include it in the resource catalog for, for others to to learn and to share the knowledge between us Thank you. Thank you, Alexandra. I mean, have you been getting a lot of feedback? Has the response been broadly positive? Yes, overall, and, and I'm really pleased to, to hear the recognition also from uh, from the European Parliament. Uh, and uh, as we heard this morning, uh, it's an it's a lot of uh, recognition, but there is also a lot of expectations. So we are doing our best to uh, to populate the observatory with knowledge to develop the successful partnerships uh, further and to make sure that we uh, provide the knowledge that is as useful as possible for uh, for the member countries, for our partners in the European universe as well as for them, NGOs, local and regional authorities, and so on. 
a lot of pressure, I'm sure. Ziga, uh, uh, so the Wise Centre was, uh, was, was formed in, in November 2020, so it's also not quite the same, uh, quite as new, but, but still relatively early days. So tell us more about your mission, your focus, and, and how to understand and help governments achieve more inclusive growth and mitigate these environmental impacts and human health. Um, how, do, how does that all work together? Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. Um, indeed, I mean, uh, we, we are still uh, in, our, uh, in our beginnings in a way, but all the people actually that are involved with the Y Center actually are very experienced economists, policy analysts that come from different parts of the OECD, uh, from the parts that have uh, very some knowledge of the labor market uh, policies, of uh, statistical analysis, of economic analysis, environmental analysis. So what we're really trying to do is to bring to go together the expertise that is needed to look beyond the financial dimensions of well-being, to look beyond the material concepts going towards uh, some indicators, uh, the data developments that help us inform beyond GDP, if you wish. And to that extent, we are very much advancing on uh, the OECD well-being framework that we have established uh, more than uh, 10 years uh, 10 years ago now um, to really bring into life um, the measurement of uh, how different issues, so um, health aspects, the quality of life, matter for people through the lens of the economists as well, but also for the broader society. And that expect uh, that um, sense, the Y Center does not only connect the data to policies, so we are really bounded in the statistical analysis, but also we are going a little bit further. We are also um, connecting the business sector with the government sector as well. So what we are doing is extremely important also for thinking how we go around with sustainable financing, with sustainable investment. So taking into consideration not only the financial risks of corporations that they are actually experiencing through the climate change um, effects, but also other ones that are pertinent more to the social factors as well. And here is something that we are now also exploring brand new approaches such as now casting and others to really get more granular data to understand really who is affected by certain policies so what type of people and who benefits uh, from their effects but on the other hand also to understand better how these uh, sort of more equity principles connect to more efficiency principles of policies, for example, that are more in the domain of the fiscal policies, the budgetary considerations, and so forth. So in other words, is we're really trying to think holistically about what well-being means for people and how to improve their lives. So if you're going back to the slogan of the OECD, better policies for better lives, this is what all is about. And how difficult is it to get, if you like, politicians or decision makers in government to think beyond GDP as, a, as an indicator or a KPI? Because it is very much entrenched, is it not? I mean, and, and trying to, to think about other indicators must be, must be a challenge. Not as much as you would think, actually. There is fantastic opportunity right now. I mean, at the same time, uh, our center is also leading the work on the recovery dashboard. Uh, so how to monitor the recovery measures, uh, building back better. So basically going towards restructuring the economies, 
uh, and trying to avoid going to uh, the normal as we used to know it before. So that means that we need to take into consideration different dimensions at the same time. So not only that the economy needs to be strong, so the strength of it in terms of economic factors, but also it needs to be inclusive, it needs to be green, and needs to be resilient, as has been highlighted before. And here, the notion of resilience so far has been very much considered as more economic resilience. But countries more and more and more, they want to know what else should be factored in. And then when we understand these separate dimensions, how do these dimensions interlink? How do the social factors interlink with environmental considerations? So this is something that they really are eyeing very closely, also in international fora of G7 and G20. I mean, we've seen a big push towards that. So this is a great momentum to seize. And at the same time, we see it mirroring picture in the business sector. So we've been working very closely with businesses over the last three, four years in particularly. And also in 2019, for example, we had this Business for Inclusive Growth Coalition that pledged to fight against inequalities even before COVID. But when COVID kicked in, they emphasized the efforts. They immediately reacted and said, look, these are the actions what we're doing, what, or what our colleague like from Philips has said. That, that's that's what we need, the responsiveness. And this is something that we're really seeing taking place. Well, I will come back to you. <laughs> I'm going to come back to you and we will talk a little bit because uh, I want to know since it's happening at the moment what uh, what you want from the G7. But first, uh, let's let's indeed hear from Jasper. Um, you mentioned some of the milestones that uh, Philips has already achieved. But tell me more about the initiatives taken on the circular economy element of uh, and the assessment and the mitigation of pollution impacts on health. Sure. Uh, thank you, uh, Jennifer. So about circular economy, it, it just makes sense, uh, right? It's circular economy is about decoupling economic growth from resource consumption. And uh, so it reduces the amount of waste and pollution. As a world, we produce 50 million tons of electronic waste uh, per year. So that's just a ridiculous amount. So it, it makes business sense to go towards a circular economy because we want to maximize the value of materials in the value chain as long as possible. And in uh, Phyllis, we do this in, in two ways. So first, we focus on what's already out there in the world. Philips makes um, yeah, different uh, healthcare uh, uh, products, including large medical scanners and, and other systems that help patients in hospitals around the world. We successfully delivered on our previous pledge to take back those used systems, refurbish them, and then repurpose them in a responsible way, for instance, giving them a, a, second, uh, a second life. And our next commitment is to extend this and to close the loop on all professional equipment. And this then reduces the amount of materials and pollution that ends up in the environment. Now, the second way to drive the circular economy is about creating new circular solutions. Uh, and actually, yesterday, something exciting uh, happened. Um, the EU Green Consumption Pledge uh, was announced uh, from uh, the EU and several companies, and Philips uh, joined that uh, pledge. So we publicly announced and committed to only introduce new products with ambitious eco-design criteria that go well beyond the legal, uh, legal requirements. 
Um, yeah, so talking about product design. So product design has a huge impact on circular performance and environmental impact. And we pioneered something called circular ready design. And that de depending on the type of uh, product and, and business model, the circular ready design uses a couple of design strategies uh, to minimize environmental impacts and uh, get a, a circular economy going. So one example is, for instance, with sustainable material selection. Um, we avoid harmful substances that would then eventually end up uh, in the environment, in the product design itself. And we also try to use as much, um, yeah, some people call it recycled materials. We like to word secondary raw materials. Uh, in the, the product itself. And there's also other smart choices uh, that you can make. For instance, making uh, things easy to clean so they can be reused. Designing products to be easy to disassemble, to repair and to reassemble. And to employ modular design strategies for forward and backward compatibility so that extends the, uh, the, uh, the lifetime of, uh, of the devices. And apart from circular ready design, we also focus on other environmental uh, impacts in our product designs, such as lowering energy use, uh, reducing packaging, using sustainable packaging materials, or reducing weight of the products, uh, because we see that 90% of the environmental footprint uh, from our company is actually from the use phase of our systems. So the biggest impact we can have is actually designing our products in a smart way. Thank well you. Thank you. Well, this, this circular ready design principle, is this something that you think could be picked up and used by other organizations or other companies? Oh, absolutely. And that, that's why the EU is so important, because we drive uh, really a message of harmonization and standardization. Uh, so uh, Philips actively works in uh, uh, through trade associations and, and uh, uh, standardizing uh, organizations to come to a com common understanding of what actually uh, uh, circular design means. Because then we can actually team up together um, and also uh, make sure that if this eventually will turn uh, uh, into uh, criteria, let's say uh, you would have uh, 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 governments and hospitals setting certain uh, um, public procurement criteria, that we have a common understanding of actually what does a, 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 a circular product mean? Huh? What is actually an, an eco-designed uh, product? So we definitely team up uh, with our uh, knowledge partners. Yeah, it would be, it's wonderful to think about it in terms of all working together, a, a really, a really mm -hmm. sort of circular, but also a really coordinated ecosystem would be a wonderful aspiration. So let's hope we get there. Um, Maria, I know at the Pulse Project, you've developed these models to, uh, to assess and, and get an idea of the impact of pollution on citizens' health and, and, and their exposure to pollution. Can you tell me a bit more about these models, how they work, what is it you're monitoring? Thank you. Um, um, it was mentioned by Ms. Sara before, Serdas, I think was her surname, in her previous remark that uh, air pollution is correlated uh, and considered a risk factor of many diseases. So in the case of PALS, uh, it was focused on the link between air pollution and the respiratory disease of asthma and between physical inactivity and the disease of uh, type 2 diabetes. So the emphasis of PALS was on 
environmental and the behavioral risk of those two diseases onset with a goal to build these extensible models and technologies able to predict, mitigate, and manage uh, public health problems. So uh, within this framework, PALS developed and tested new models for the prediction of type 2 diabetes and asthma risk uh, onset, taking into account different environmental and behavioral risk factors, and considering different scenarios uh, of the different variables to be considered taking into account those that are easy accessible from the, uh, without requiring particular measurements or those that require uh, non-invasive measurements like uh, heart rate for asthma or uh, blood pressure for uh, type 2 diabetes and including a third scenario for the case of type 2 diabetes of uh, an invasive measure like uh, glucose concentration. So these models uh, were combined and providing risk scores uh, for uh, both type 2 diabetes. Uh, uh, so uh, it provides you probability of developing this disease in the next eight years. And then in the case of asthma, uh, it provides also a score to develop the disease in the next five years. So in addition to these two models, PALS also developed a six-dimension scores uh, well-being model. Uh, based on the well-being and the European uh, social survey. And this model was uh, fed using information from questionnaires coming from the citizens uh, using an app, and then activity trackers and air quality sensors. And finally, um, because one of the aims of uh, the project was to assist and uh, giving uh, citizens personalized feedback to help them to make uh, behavioral choices to reduce the exposure of uh, to air pollutants, we also develop a dynamic uh, personal exposure uh, assessment model using a dense network of low-cost air pollution sensors, the GPS location of the user, and also an estimation of the number of pollutants inhaled by uh, by the user. So, in addition to all these uh, models. Uh, PALS require also the development of different technological components uh, in order to provide and show results in a public health observatory that could uh, provide intervention and policy development and implementation. And what sort of sample size did you have? Was it easy to get citizens to, to in, in engage with you? I mean, I, or did you work through healthcare professionals? How, how did you find people for the, for the studies? Wait. Yeah, thank you for the question because you tackle a very difficult point because as I mentioned, we had seven different cities and part of the, uh, a big part of the, of the project was the recruitment of uh, users. So we had to, even if uh, this was um, citizen science, uh, the project follow a citizen science approach where participation of the citizens was crucial because we wanted to not only to have uh, general information but particular information from the citizens. Uh, we follow different strategies in the different cities. So for some of them, we even offer prices. Uh, there were challenges like uh, the 1000 uh, challenge uh, for uh, step challenge uh, in cities like Singapore or Birmingham where 
um, if you completed this, then you get uh, a prize. And even for some of the users, like in New York, we offer them the, the activity tracker uh, to the user. So uh, we engage uh, uh, around 2,000 users, so around 300 in each, uh, in each of, the, of the cities. And um, yeah, it, it was a very uh, difficult process, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, no doubt. I mean, some of us, of course, we, we wear a tracker, but that depends very much on the certain sort of part of the population, I guess, you represent. Ziga, I wanted to ask you about the links between inequalities and environmental issues. And, and you know, you're measuring and monitoring. Do, do you see different stratas of different people feeling it more or, or being more engaged with the work you're doing? Thank you very much. Uh, very good question. Uh, indeed, I mean, we, we do see that. I mean, it's very important that we look at the issues at the more granular levels. So not only looking at national averages and aggregates, uh, but trying to tease out how it matters for children, how it matters for elderly, how it matters for women, how it matters basically for people depending on their socioeconomic status, but also where they're located, where they operate, where they do their activities actually, and also where they live and what kind of conditions they live, whether they're crowded households or not. And we have some data on that, but honestly, we still need to do much, much more progress. Uh, and this is something that we are really organizations, I mean, including with the European uh, Environment Agency. I mean, they have fantastic work on air pollution and also by different population groups and so on. And what we are focusing as well on is in developing new methods to interpret and to use better the geospatial information. That's important because once you have geospatial information for air pollution, you can overlay it with different maps. You can very easily see what is the economic activity in that area or, for example, what type of housing prices you have in that area. And this gives you a very strong pattern of whether the socioeconomic situation is sort of responding to environmental challenges or not. So basically, you get more feeling about interactions between them. But what's a big challenge is to get this sort of information timely and very frequently. Often it's very lacked. Lagging two or three years behind, but you know when we need to inform of crisis like COVID, we need to inform it now. And this is something that we've been discussing a lot with countries, and there is huge interest by national statistical offices as well um, to come towards developing new approaches to generate data uh, that would help think not only for this current pandemic in, in this sense, but also be ready to have the the tools. Uh, the statistical tools available for any future pandemics that will come at some point in time. Alexandra, I noticed you nodding along, particularly at that point regarding timely data. What has been your experience? Yes, I, I can only totally agree with uh, what uh, Ziga is saying that uh, we, we do have then very sort of granular uh, environmental data about air pollution, about noise, um, about uh, climate impacts, accessibility of green spaces, a lot of uh, various environmental aspects. Um, however, the, the struggle to sort of um, assess the impact uh, on uh, social vulnerability or the sort of relations with socioeconomic inequalities is finding the socioeconomic data of equal granularity 
um, that we could combine together to, to carry out the, the, the assessment. So most of our assessments don't actually go below the sort of regional level where we could get the sort of complete coverage of data from, uh, from Eurostat. And the currency of data uh, as well uh, sometimes uh, is, is something that, uh, that we could uh, definitely uh, Im improve on both in terms of the environmental data and the, and the socioeconomic data. So sometimes the long reporting cycles uh, on the air pollution and on noise, for example, are a bit of an obstacle. Just to add that from the climate change perspective and the vulnerability of people, sometimes it's very specific. For example, if you imagine a situation where, mm, where flooding comes, uh, someone who's normally quite capable of leaving the house very quickly and evacuating uh, uh, they, they belongings, but they happen to have a broken leg at the time, uh, suddenly is much less mobile. So sometimes this vulnerability uh, to climate-related impacts is, is very sort of um, specific to a particular period in, in, uh, in people's lives, being pregnant, having a broken leg and so on. So, so we lack the mechanisms to actually capture that uh, and present it in, in real time, just to reflect what, what Ziga was saying. Thank you. Thank you. Jasper, I think you have uh, something to add to this discussion. Yeah, I think we're, we're really at the uh, uh, point in time that we can, to, uh, can, can start to connect the different puzzle pieces, right? So if uh, when pollution eventually impacts some people uh, uh, to the point that they actually end up in, uh, in, in, in hospitals, um, then you really start to talk about patients. And there's a revolution going on now with the digitalization. So the digitalization has reached a point in healthcare where value is shifting from standalone uh, uh, products to really to, to see solutions. And that's disrupting the, the healthcare landscape, landscape right now. So um, um, yeah, if we look at our, 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 our customers, yeah, hospitals, doctors, they're talking about a continuous uh, care, a health continuum that is encouraging people to take an active role in the management of their own, own health. So we're not only talking about then uh, 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 treating patients in hospital, but actually moving healthcare also to homes and daily lives with preventative and chronic care uh, services outside of the, of the hospital. And at the same time, you also see uh, uh, consumers and people's, uh, people themselves using mobile devices, wearable monitors and other technologies uh, looking for a way to uh, to stay to stay healthy. So, um, if people leave a hospital or people with uh, chronic uh, conditions, uh, you really see now health technology uh, leading a way to support uh, recovery yeah? and also uh, potentially uh, to have a change of lifestyle. So, I think with the new technology digitalization, we can start connecting the dots of of pollution and impact on health. Thank you. I mean, I think, in fact, one of the one of the points we want to talk about today is about well-being. It's not necessarily about health at the point of treating sickness. It's this preventative in advance, being better, being well. And um, now we've got quite a few questions coming in from the audience. Um, let me let me. We've got one here from uh, Louis Lostis, who's curious to know what Maria and Ziga believe where the EU Climate and Health Observatory could support their work. Maria, do you have uh, any thoughts on where that could go? Okay, um, thank you for the question. I, I, I think that uh, one of the one of the um, one of the points uh, Pulse uh, wanted to achieve, and I think that somehow it it could it it, it did, um, was uh, to have the potential to collect um, data at individual level 
on behavior, mobility, etc., that um, the traditional surveillance systems uh, are unable to gather. So um, the usual open data that are generated by different organizations are only one source of data. So when uh, this data is supplemented uh, by data that is created by the systems, uh, by the citizens, um, this can provide uh, better insights and better outcomes. So in this sense, what uh, I think that um, systems like PALS in, in collaboration with these uh, observatories uh, can allow uh, the analysis of um, aggregated data that can support uh, decision making in different public policies. Thank you. Uh, Ziga, let me, the, the, the same question to you. Where can the EU Climate and Health Observatory assist and, and, and what's its value? Yeah, I mean, um, maybe just to highlight like two points. So one is that we haven't really touched upon yet, but it's extremely important is, is actually distinguishing very well between the sources of subjective data so self-perceived measures so how do people feel about being exposed to certain environmental threats how do they feel about policies are affecting them so we've developed a lot of work on measuring trust on on uh, understanding better the perceptions of people so this is something that also needs to be taken into consideration when uh, against the statistical data and another angle that is very important is mapping of course this is what uh, Margarita has, has just mentioned and this is something that we are working together very well and we can build on each other's experiences as well for example at the OECD we have frameworks uh, that use uh, different that combine different types of data uh, to construct the indicators for example the green growth indicators framework we have the environment at the glass we have the inclusive growth dashboard going for growth dashboards and so forth and most of these dashboards actually they do not rely on one single data point but usually they combine two data points in relation to each other so this sort of experience and then the experience how to link these sort of indicators to policies directly, it's extremely valuable. And this is something that I think uh, both the OECD, EA, and with the others, uh, we can very well cooperate together also to get a sense of what are the same type of concepts, the same type of methodologies, guidelines that people can use. And people means stakeholders more broadly, so also companies, not only the governments. Well, well thank you for that. Um, I have a question here for, uh, for Jasper uh, from a Bill Grayson asking, will Philips uh, apply the same circular thinking and recycling to their domestic products? Yes, abso absolutely. That's a, that's a fantastic uh, question. So we have different uh, circular design strategies um, that apply differently to the uh, various products in our portfolio. So looking at, uh, I, I, I said something about our larger uh, um, uh, medical systems where it's really important to extend the lifetime as much as possible. Um, and uh, co comparative but different uh, uh, criteria apply to our consumer portfolio. So first of all, making sure that the lifetime is as, as long as possible. But the, uh, uh, 
the focus in uh, consumer products is more on uh, the use of recycled uh, materials and uh, making it easy to uh, to repair. Yeah, so we do an um, uh, uh, actually as part of the, uh, the 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 green consumption pledge that was announced yesterday, we'll use uh, um, the uh, uh, a, a, a footprint uh, methodology. Uh, to look actually at the environmental impact uh, of our our products, so we can actually optimize our uh, circular design in the areas where it, uh, it it impacts the most. So for our consumer products, that is uh, the use of recycled materials, uh, uh, reducing energy consumption, uh, packaging is uh, super important. Uh, so definitely, uh, uh, circularity applies a lot to our consumer devices as well, uh, but just uh, with uh, different focal areas uh, compared to our uh, professional portfolio. Well, thank you very much. Um, Bill also has, has a second question. I think I'd like the, uh, the whole panel to answer. Um, he's asking in general, why does the EU not yet have a system for routinely monitoring the buildup of toxins in the bodies of its own citizens? I think that's it's a quite a broad question and, and, and one that uh, this whole panel is seeking to address. Um, but he further mentions that uh, we're not only affected by air pollution, of course, we are a, uh, there's a complex mix of chemicals that are in our food and water. So there's a lot of different data points there that I think he is trying to, to, to touch on. Alexandra, perhaps you could, uh, I know it's, it's a very overarching question and a lot of different moving parts, but perhaps you could attempt to give us your reaction to that. I think from what I know that there are attempts to become better at human biomonitoring and, and monitoring the, the sort of uh, content of, of, of various chemical substances in, in human bodies. I know that uh, my colleagues from the European Environment Agency are involved in a huge European uh, project called HBM for EU, which stands for Human Biomonitoring for EU, which is aiming to collect the available knowledge and uh, also streamline the approaches to human um, biomonitoring. It is coming up already with some interesting uh, results as well about, uh, for example, the socioeconomic differences uh, um, when it comes to the buildup of different uh, chemical substances in, in human bodies. So, so, so I will uh, encourage the person who asked the question to, uh, to, to search for HBM for EU and uh, find the relevant information there. Thank you. Uh, Ziga, do you have anything to add to this question of why we don't have routinely human biomonitoring uh, in the EU? Well, I'm not, not particularly the expert on, on this issue. Uh, we do have actually at our environment directorate, we have an entire division that actually looks into uh, the, the chemical um, basically aspects of, of the environmental uh, things and also with that respect. Um, there is uh, a lot of work going on on how we test and how do we establish better databases on that. But why we don't yet have it, I think that I would not have the right answer here. Oh yes, we're, we're, not, we're none of us politicians here who, on, on this panel. Um, but Maria, perhaps I know you mentioned that in, in Pulse you were looking at the, uh, the air pollution effects and asthma. And I think uh, one of the points that Bill was raising there is that Sometimes we focus on certain types of pollution, maybe to the exception of others. Do you think that's uh, a point or, or do you think that it's, it's simply that one area deserves more attention than others? 
Um, I, I think in this case, uh, I mean, uh, we, um, as in every area of research, and uh, Alexandra mentioned that there are other projects trying to, to work on this aspect. Uh, in the in the in pulse we only concentrated on air pollution as such because at this uh, at this moment it was uh, very relevant in the pilots that we were addressing uh, this was um, very uh, prominent let's say in the population for different reasons and the different areas that were uh, were tackled but it's true that um, uh, there are other contaminants that uh, also affect the uh, the body uh, causing uh, other uh, diseases and this is this is clearly um, stated in the new european uh, uh, let's say program of europe with cancer where uh, uh, you know different uh, um, areas are identified and that will be addressed uh, in order to uh, diminish or uh, beat cancer in the in the future but um, uh, as, um, as us uh, working in this project, we only consider uh, this uh, air pollution effect in this disease. Even when we, even if we at the beginning uh, only for diabetes, we consider the behavioral, let's say, the sedentarism of the of the population as a risk factor. Then, uh, when we were developing the project, it came out that, that uh, air pollution was also very relevant in the case of. Uh, the onset of diabetes type 2. So um, yeah, there are, uh, I think that there is a lot to do. And uh, obviously, as Siga said, I, I'm not the expert in this in this field, but there are programs that in the future we will see definitely tackling this and uh, maybe in the future a European, let's say, uh, routine uh, monitoring for this. Jasper, let me ask you to reflect on that particular point regarding the different sorts of pollution that we're discussing. Uh, air pollution does get a lot of airtime, a lot of a lot of media headlines, um, but you know we also see a, a, an increasing awareness of microplastics or other chemical pollutants. Um, and, but they vary from place to place around the world, do they not? Uh, yes, exactly. So if, if you look at the environmental um, sources of 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 pollution. Um, there's actually three areas that 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 Philips is closely monitoring. So the first of all is obviously from our own operation, right? If you look at our direct emissions that we have to the environment from our own uh, from our own uh, uh, factories, and we have uh, uh, strict rules in place to uh, uh, avoid the use or av avoid. Uh, uh, pollution as much as possible uh, and to uh, uh, measure, monitor and report on uh, emissions that, that we have worldwide. Um, and as a global company, we have just a single policy to make sure that um, if you have uh, countries with weaker environmental laws, that we at least have uh, had the same uh, 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 minimum standards worldwide. And that's the strength of the EU, right? To have also uh, one harmonized approach. Uh, we also look at the impact of our supply chain of our suppliers uh, to uh, drive them to uh, reduce uh, uh, pollution. And then the third aspect is um, uh, what actually is then, uh, uh, what ends up in the environment through our, our, our products. 
so I know microplastics is a really a new uh, uh, topic that we are monitoring very closely because we see that there, there's lots of attention uh, rising to it. So I think that will be a next uh, uh, point of attention, I think, in the very new, near, near future. Um, looking at the, the hazardous substances in general in our products, um, uh, in, in Philips, we've already for decades actually have a, uh, a public uh, a set of requirements uh, to go beyond the minimum restrictions like, uh, like Ross restrictions to really drive down the amount of hazardous substances in, in our uh, uh, products. And we continuously to update that regularly uh, and uh, share that with our suppliers as a, uh, a requirement. Uh, so that really keeps on driving down the uh, um, yeah, pollution or the, the substances that eventually end up uh, in the environment. And that is kind of the natural fit again with circular economy, right? So even if you have certain substances that are really functional, that have really added value, but at the same time, you don't want to have it end up in the environment, that you make sure that it doesn't end up in landfill and it actually, you close the loop and make sure that it is recovered and reused. Well, uh, as a follow-up, I mean, some of these requirements are legally uh, mandated, um, but of course, then some others, and you're going beyond what the, what the floor level is. Do you think that I mean there should be more legal pressure on companies, or 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 is it enough to just point them in the right direction and say this is what you should be doing, uh, but you know your supply chain best or your own business best? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think what um, will have the most beneficial effect is to have a very uh, uh, clear uh, path and roadmap. So it takes a it takes a while to design products and to launch them on on the market where it will have their impact. And the earlier in the design phase where you can actually make uh, make decisions, actually the more efficient it is. So we've already seen that the AU is very uh, 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 effective in providing this roadmap saying, hey, we want to start banning these substances in a couple of years from now, so we can actually take that into account with product design. But if you would have very sudden changes in uh, uh, regulation, then actually we need to pull away resources that are working on innovation and do all kinds of corrective actions to, to uh, uh, and make sure that we uh, align with the, the, the sudden changes. And then as a net effect, we actually have less resources available to, to work on uh, uh, eco-designed uh, products. So uh, I think having having uh, clarity, the right uh, incentives is very important. Um, so I think uh, if you look at reach, uh, the reach uh, uh, laws in uh, Europe, I think that's a clear, very clear path where you start with listing the SVHCs that uh, are suspicious, you, uh, you have reporting, and then once there's more evidence about the actual harm or not about these particular substances, they mo- then move into the uh, phase where it's restrictive. So I think that is, uh, that is key to provide a clear uh, roadmap. And of course, yes, that, that all ties into as well this sort of precautionary principle that is, uh, is held by the EU. Uh, Siga, let me come back to you about building back better and what governments can do to align environmental objectives with broader well-being priorities, um, including, you know, just not just health, but other considerations in terms of well-being. Um, so what, what's, what is WISE doing to make to measure what matters to people beyond GDP. So we are actually 
framing our analysis on one side on uh, developing indicators, but actually it's not something that we are doing from scratch. Uh, so what we're really after is to have a solid uh, dashboard to inform on strong, inclusive, green and resilient recovery. Uh, but the important to note here is that actually um, it should be rather simple to use. Uh, it should not have too many indicators. So we are focusing around 20 indicators, five per each dimension. And we are looking at the levels that are beyond the aggregates, beyond the statistical averages. For example, we are trying to see exactly uh, what wage gaps uh, you know, matter when we take into, into consideration gender diversity. Uh, when we are looking at uh, income inequality issues that we understand very well by different income cohorts, what it matters. Um, so in other words, uh, we, we are really focusing on capturing the aspects of the quality dimension of the recovery. So not only the quantity of jobs that uh, would need to be provided, but actually whether or not are we improving the conditions for workers, uh, whether the work is becoming less stressful. Um, then also, we are also need to understand that what is needed is to go really towards something that is more systemic in the nature of transformation. So that means that we are not looking only at one specific sectors, but how it actually interconnects across the sectors. And the big challenge is how to combine different dimensions of strength, inclusiveness, green and resilience together. So perhaps that's actually uh, the big part that uh, it's also very valuable in the work that we are doing with businesses um, to connect the social and environmental uh, issues uh, together. Well, thank you very much, Nick. I think that, that is a lovely wrap up of, of your work. Uh, we're, we're pretty much running uh, to the end of our event now. So I'm just going to get Alexandra as well and, and the others to just give me your final thoughts, please. I think that uh, when it comes to climate change and health, there is still a lot of unknowns and there is still a lot that we should learn. And I think probably the biggest knowledge gap is about what works best, what solutions are the most effective, what solutions are the most cost efficient. So I think we should be really focusing our efforts on exchange, gathering this knowledge and exchanging this knowledge on, on practical solutions. I think what is also really important is to connect the various communities working on climate change, on health, on other aspects of environmental pollution, make sure that we don't work in silos. Uh, and these silos are particularly important at the sort of uh, local uh, authority level where a lot of the solutions are um, uh, being implemented. So I would really encourage this sort of uh, work in partnership and uh, exchanging knowledge and, and striving together towards uh, becoming uh, pollution-free and safe from climate change. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Maria, uh, closing thoughts. Uh, have, I mean, joined up knowledge is obviously the, the theme that we're hearing from Alexandra. What, what would be your big takeaway? Okay. Uh, I think that um, in general, uh, systems like uh, the ones we have uh, been showing the, during this uh, um, panel where uh, we have uh, we are collecting a lot of heterogeneous information coming from 
different sources, uh, create uh, scenarios that can contribute to the promotion, health promotion and disease prevention in different, uh, in three different, I will say in three different uh, areas. So on the one hand, uh, on research that uh, systems uh, um, policies and uh, stakeholders working together uh, to allow um, a more precise identification of at-risk populations through um, more comprehensive understanding of the human health and the disease. So including uh, interaction between genetic uh, lifestyle and different environmental uh, determinants of health. Also at the level of surveillance, so uh, enabling uh, better surveillance, not only to non-communicable diseases, but also to communicable diseases like uh, the one we are suffering now. And then uh, finally, at the level of intervention that can uh, facilitate uh, better um, targeted um, strategies uh, and different interventions that can improve uh, the health promotion and uh, disease prevention. Thank you. And then Jasper, last but uh, again, not least, give us your, uh, your, your closing thoughts um, before we, we move on to our final wrap up. Yeah, thanks. No, I think uh, uh, looking at, uh, at at the EU, uh, every country, every company is uh, facing constraints in terms of resourcing. So having a fact-based, evidence-based uh, uh, policy to really get the most value out of the effort that we uh, uh, put in, I think that is the, the best outcome that we can get uh, by working together and sharing knowledge uh, through these kinds of platforms. Well, thank you very much for a really interesting discussion. We could have talked, I'm sure, a lot longer. We also still had questions in for you that we didn't get a chance to get to. But thank you once again. I'm going to turn now to uh, Veronica Manfredi, Director of Quality of Life at DG Environment, uh, to have the unenviable task of trying to summarize and wrap up for us the main thrust of our discussion today. Uh, Veronica, I believe you're there. Can you hear me? Absolutely, yes, and I can Great. see you, Jennifer. That's super. I can't see you, but uh, at least we can hear you. Um, I, I'm sure you've been following the discussion today with interest, so can you give me your thoughts on, on the main points that were raised and, and what your hopes are for the future? Absolutely. Well, first of all, let me say a big thank you to all policies for a healthy Europe and Euractiv for a really fascinating discussion, which honestly encourages me uh, in the sense that I hear that the crux of the matter is very much the same crux of the matter we have identified in the Zero Pollution Action Plan. We seem to know a lot about very many different sources of pollution, from air to noise to what contaminates our waters, our seas, our soils, and ultimately plays back bad on our own uh, health and damages our ecosystem. So the challenge is really to pull the strings secure that we go towards knowledge sharing, which is of a much higher quality. And there a thought that I thought was coming from one of the panelists, which we fully embrace in the Zero Pollution Action Plan, is the completely untapped potential yet of what digitalization can bring to us. We have reached a degree of maturity today that can let us go much faster in connecting these dots that we need to connect. 
the European Union has decided with the Zero Pollution Action Plan to identify the EEA, European Environment Agency, who was present at this panel and the Joint Research Center as its knowledge center of excellence for zero pollution, which means that these two bodies will have a role in coordinating the many other data sources that, of course, we get also from our very close cooperation with the colleagues from the OECD. So this all seems to bring the dots together. Um, I heard a lot of thoughts about the need to accelerate action to secure more uh, life cycle human biomonitoring. I'm happy to tell you that actually it's uh, since over a couple of years now that we have launched the world's largest network of epidemiologists assessing indeed um, life cycle impacts of environmental factors uh, uh, on human health. So this is also data sources that we need to put all together. Um, I heard about the importance to secure that we connect the dots across the different Green Deal strands, which is at the core of what we want to do with zero pollution. So circularity, of course, helps in polluting less. Uh, greening our cities in line with biodiversity strategy goes there. Getting, uh, uh, getting uh, uh, our uh, farming much more sustainable, getting pesticides free serves this purpose. The renovation wave will help us to secure better air quality, both outdoor and indoor, uh, throughout uh, you know, our, our working also from home, as we do all of us during these pandemic times. So conclusion is, there is a lot to do, but we have already quite a lot in our cupboards, if I may say, and we can just, by uniting our effort become so much stronger, so much more resilient. And this is why in the last uh, last week at the Green Week event, we have also launched the Zero Pollution Stakeholder Platform. Uh, we are now operationalizing it. By this autumn, it will be operational. And I really look forward to have all the companies and all the people that participated to this panel today on board with us. All hands on deck. All hands on deck indeed, Veronica. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I was very myself struck by last week's uh, Green Week. I presented the Life Awards. The work that's going on is tremendous. And, and as you say, there's an awful lot of strands that we are pulling together to try and get this joined up thinking, which is what it's all about. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. I am sure we will continue this discussion in the future. Veronica Manfredi there, Director of Quality of Life at DG Envy. So thank you for joining us. Let me thank again all the panellists who spoke today and the organisers who put this very important panel together. Of course, that's all policies for a healthy Europe. And I do want to urge you to continue this discussion well beyond today's event. Use the hashtag Healthy Europe and the hashtag Wellbeing for the number four all so that you can have a, a, an ongoing debate about what is needed in the future as we build back better from the COVID crisis. It's a real pleasure to talk to so many experts about things that they really know about. So do make sure you keep doing that. With that, I will thank you, the audience, for your questions and your comments. We do appreciate that you tuned in and sent your suggestions. So uh, we will be back with more in the future. So do stay tuned to your active. Thank you very much and have a wonderful Friday.